Very early in my ministry, I attended a conference on preaching. Now, I'm not much of a conference attendee, but I went to this one because the primary speaker one afternoon was a pastor that I had listened to before and admired and wanted to learn from of how he crafted a sermon and engaged the scripture text. I showed up and totally dorked out. I was on the front row. I had my pad. I got there early, my pencil. And uh, then I just sort of lost myself on my phone as everybody else was coming in. And then he started to speak, and I was taking notes and uh, just completely into it. There are things that he taught about that day that I still think about as I write sermons uh, 20 years later. This one part he got to, and he said, now one of the things that every preacher needs to know is that there are going to be ups and downs in your ministry and in your preaching. He said, you're going to go through dry spells when this week after week after week gets hard. You don't feel like things go right. You're going to be criticized at times. You're going to have people who critique you at times. And he said, in those moments, it's critically important that every single preacher has a cheerleader. Somebody that's just in their corner. Somebody that's just going to have their back and build them up no matter what. I was sitting there going, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, I can kind of think about that. And, but I looked around, and the heads around me were all nodding. I thought, well, they're more experienced than me, so that's probably something I want to pay attention to. And he, then the speaker said, and probably like many of you, my cheerleader is my wife. And I thought, yeah, I mean, she's British, and they don't have cheerleaders there. But, yeah, yeah I mean, I completely know that, that she supports me and, and, and wants the best for me. And I can kind of go with that. The problem I had was kind of looking around going, but my wife's also a pastor. And she's often working on Sundays as well or preaching. And I turned and looked and thought, well, what would it be like if she were here? And it was all men in the room that had filled in behind me. I thought, well, it's sort of a generational thing, and, you know, this is fine. I'm still sort of taking things in. And then he said, I can come in on a Sunday after preaching in multiple services, and it could be the worst sermon I've preached. And when I walk in the door, my wife puts lunch down in front of me, and she says, you are the best. And that sermon was amazing. And he said, and even though I know it may not have been amazing, it's so important for me just to hear that. Looked around, and all the other heads are nodding around the room, and the guy next to me, who I don't even know, leans over and is like, that's what a wife's supposed to do. And I'm like, no, no, not at all. Now, to be clear, I have never questioned if my wife wants me to flourish in life and in ministry. I have never doubted that at all in her. But how you get there and how we had gotten there was through honesty with one another. I had learned very early on, whether it's about a sermon or anything else, if you don't want to know what Beth actually thinks about something, don't ask. You all have been here. You've seen some of you at times when I can be preaching with wisdom and wit and eloquence, and she can go look at me in the middle of it and go, which is her sign for land the plane. You're circling the runway, time to land the plane, time to be done. As I sat there hearing that description, something just kind of made my skin crawl of what I was hearing. I bet that that's what some of you felt when you heard the scripture passage for today read. This is a scripture passage about marriage from Ephesians chapter 5 that I read with every single couple with whom I do premarital counseling. And every time you read it, for the first time out loud together, there's this tension in the air. 
I one time had a bride-to-be who looked at me afterwards and said, you're not going to read that in the ceremony, are you? Because people will literally stand up and walk out, and that is not my vision for my wedding. If you are someone who hears this and this evokes images or experiences that are uh, difficult or painful or seem countercultural to what we understand the kingdom to be about, I invite you this day to stick with me for the next few minutes because I think there's something here for us that we need to hear. Likewise, if you were not married and you're hearing this going, well, the worship today doesn't have anything to do with my life. This is one section of Ephesians 5 where Paul's talking about all different kinds of relationships. And he says that in all of these relationships, we shouldn't put marriage up on a pedestal as above and beyond and unlike anything else. I mean, Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking that, that, that marriage exists on this different plateau. And indeed, what he says about marriage here is that marriage is a reflection of of God's love for us. And as other relationships are, it's how we outwardly express our faith. And so even if you're not married listening to this, I want you to stick with me for the next few minutes because there's something here for us. I believe that these words have a profound depth and beauty that all of us need to hear and in fact to learn from. So how we're going to do this is we're going to break the passage that was read by Kristen and Wick into three sections. And our translation of the Bible we use here at Covenant, the New Revised Standard Version, actually divides them into three paragraphs in uh, these three sections that we're going to look at. And rather than reading each of the verses, what I want to do is for each section just read the first verse, and we're going to talk about the first verse because we're going to see what it is that Paul's talking about when we look and think about marriage. The first section is from verse 21. Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, some translations uh, put this verse, verse 21, and they link it more with the verses preceding it. Verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. But Paul changes his language here starting in verse 20, and it's very specific that he's now talking to two people and moving into the rest of the passage. And so it's critically important that when we think about a Christian understanding of marriage, Paul starts by creating an umbrella in verse 21 that says, be subject to one another. He's not speaking to one person or the other. He's not speaking to one spouse only or the other. He's speaking to both equally saying, you are to be subject, to to be humble, to seek the best and the betterment of your spouse. And it's not just that this is how we generate love. He says this is out of reverence for Christ as a follower, as a disciple of Christ. That's what that word disciple means. It means one who follows. Or as we say here at Covenant, we encourage one another to follow Jesus. It means in no part of our life are we the big deal or are we the king or are we the queen or are we the tyrant or are we the ruler. In all things, we submit ourselves to following Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And this is a way that we express that outwardly of both people seeking, he says here, to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. The second part that Kristen, read, that Kristen read is starting in the next verse, verse 22. This is the second part. It says, wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Now, again, you see the importance of whether we bring verse 21 in again. 
Many translations that don't, in many ways that the church has historically taught this, and I would argue mistaught this, is that when we talk about Christian marriage, we start with this verse, verse 22. And so we say, all right, here's marriage. First, wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. But no, he's linking this in with the verse before it, using the same verb. First saying, now be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so now, wives, here's what this means, that we are to be subject to our spouse. It saves us when we do this from making the very dangerous error of reading this with modern ears in 2020 going, well, Paul didn't understand like we do. We're more knowledgeable. We're more enlightened as to how the world should work. And this isn't how we think about it. I think that he means what he says here. And I think we are to take on board that he means what he says, that wives are to be subject to their spouse, seeking the the flourishing of their spouse, seeking to humble themselves and to serve. And yes, this can be taken advantage of, and it has been in many times throughout history, but that doesn't mean that it's not accurate. Not when it's understood as connected to the other verses around it. Be subject to one another. Wives, be subject to your husband. Meaning that I believe that as a wife, you are to wake up every day saying, how can I serve? How can I sacrifice? How can I lay down my life so that everything that God wants to do and my spouse's life and in their story can come alive. How can they come alive in the Lord? And how can I serve and sacrifice to make that happen? This leads us into the third part, which Wick read about, which is to husbands. It says, husbands, in verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, anyone who's looking at this will see, see, look at how Paul changes the language for men. It goes from be subject wives to your husbands to husbands love your wives. And that can very much make it sound like when we just look at those verses that it's a hierarchical relationship, that wives are are supposed to do more and to submit more and to serve more and to be more and more humble, whereas the husbands are just maybe hoped to be loving to their wife. And yes, Paul is writing to a particular cultural context where women and wives were seen as the property of their husband. But I'm not certain it's as hierarchical when we really investigate it as it first sounds. See, there's three words in the Greek that can be translated under the word love. The first is philio, which means uh, familial love, the love you have of a deep friend. The second is eros, which is romantic love. The third word is the purest, most divine form of love. The Greek word for that is agape. Agape means a love that in action, a love that does, a love that, that does in, in, in the act of serving and sacrificing. He says, as Christ loved the church, and Christ never dominated the church, Christ gave himself up, Christ served, Christ uh, humbled himself, even to the point of death, we read in the book of Philippians. That there's nothing about as a wife as submitting to her husband that, that means that the husband is in charge or a tyrant or a king or one who has better knowledge. Rather, what it's saying is, is that husbands are to be sacrificing and serving. And the only thing that we're to try to exceed our wife's in is our ability to sacrifice and submit and subject ourselves so that our wives can flourish. So that we wake up every day asking the question, how can I lay down my life and serve and sacrifice of my life so that everything that God wants to do in my spouse's life can fully come alive? So that everything that God has planned for my spouse can happen and I don't want to get in the way of that. 
It's two people, two equal partners. I think that's the, the best definition of a biblical understanding of marriage. Two equal partners seeking to outserve one another. And friends, that is a definition that is very much still relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And in many ways, it still is revolutionary. Because yes, in modern times, and this is thankfully so, we see men and women uh, often on, on a much more egalitarian plane, although we certainly have a long way to go culturally. But it's not quite the same. But so much of what I hear about marriage now is like, well, this is kind of my bubble and my individual life, and I'm not losing my individuality, and you have your individuality, and, and then we kind of meet on some things in the middle. So much of the time when I hear marriage described now, it's about this protectionism of each individual, and it sounds like a business relationship that's being worked out. No, what we need to hear is it's two equal partners, Paul's describing, but two equal partners who hold nothing back, who seek to give everything they have in their lives to submit and to serve one another so that God can see anything happen in the other one's life. It's a gorgeous, beautiful vision of two people being able to flourish, both of whom are vulnerable as they serve, but both of whom trust the other is serving them as they seek to serve their spouse. Now, of course, you gotta then figure out what that means, what that looks like, because what might feel like service to you might not feel like service to your spouse. I heard a great story recently uh, in this time of the coronavirus where there was um, a, a, a wife who, a woman who um, is an introvert. And for introverts, uh, some of the social distancing can be okay. It's like, you know, I have to stay home and read again tonight. Okay, I'll serve and sacrifice and do it. Like for introverts, this is a whole different kind of experience of what the world of social distancing is like. But her husband is an extrovert, and this has been really hard. He feels cut off, he feels isolated, he feels alone. It's becoming really difficult for him. And so his wife organized a surprise birthday party recently. She arranged for family and friends to come over the span of a few hours. Everyone was in mass. They were distanced. They came at the uh, certain times and left at a certain time so that not too many people were ever gathered together. But for a few hours, her husband, who was struggling with something that was different than the struggles she was having, but she knew that it was happening, just got to see the faces of family and friends that he loved, to hear how much they missed him, to talk and to share and to laugh again, and it built him up. I know that for my wife, I've had to figure out that, that what makes sense to me or often kind of uh, uh, words like I look at him it's like I love you I love you I love you I love you and Beth says I love you too but but for her what makes sense and what serving her looks like are, are more acts of service yes I'm sure she likes it when I say I love her in the morning but if I have made the bed and have a great cup of British tea hot and ready for her when I see her for the first time that says I love you better than any words that I can create and one of the ways she loves me is that she's honest. The many things I respect about my wife and love about my wife, her understanding, her study of our faith and her perspective on it. I respect without parallel. And if I came in from preaching a sermon and her response was, here's lunch, it's on the table, and you're the greatest thing, and the sermon was the greatest thing, and I just think every word that comes out of your mouth are pearls of wisdom for us all to think about for weeks, and I can't tell you how special and amazing you are. That is not loving to me. That's lying to me. 
And I need and want more from my equal, from my spouse, from my life partner. And she loves me well as I seek to be honest with her and to love her well. Be subject, Paul says, to one another out of reverence for Christ. What important and beautiful words for us all to hear this day. Amen.